Welcome to today's edition of Beat to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting-edge commentary, go to feettothefire.org. That is feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. So I can just keep finding example after example in academic texts of liberalism, progressivism, seeping into even our most conservative institutions, seeping into the minds of even our most allegedly conservative thought leaders. And I've got another example right here from a book I started yesterday, and I'm only a few pages in, and, and there it is again, incorrect, un- unconservative thinking, Faux conservative. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Feet to the Fire. This is your host, Sergio Fassa. It is the first day of March. I am so excited to be here with you every day, talking with you about philosophy, about how to think through truth claims and assess the culture and the world, and also with current events in light of uh, cultural and political current events. But Continuing with the conservative mind, I think we're on part seven. Let me read this to you. I wasn't expecting to do this today, but as I said, I just started this book yesterday. This is by Stephen Dempster. This is called Dominion and Dynasty, A Theology of the Hebrew Bible. All right, so this is about analyzing the Old Testament. And there's some introductory remarks And as early as page 18, we already have injected into the text as part of the introductory remarks to the book what I've been calling uh, perspectivism, that everybody is colored by their own uh, view of reality. And so there is, uh, we have to balance those views and get somewhere in the middle where we're seeing things unbiased. And so there's a suggestion that all worldviews and all perspectives are morally equivalent on the same ground and on the same footing. And uh, so let me read this to you. I'm saying too much before I read it. This is page 18. Uh, To be sure, These cases illustrate invalid readings of the biblical text. Okay, we don't want to read the biblical text wrong. He gave some uh, extreme examples. But less excessive examples may be more dangerous because their biases are not so obvious, and often they do make a significant contribution to understanding the text. Okay, so you have to be uh, careful of more sinister Bible interpretations. That's fair. When, for example, the Old Testament is read through Marxist spectacles, Uh, Okay, he turned towards uh, a political, economic worldview model. That's fine, and he's right. People do read things with a Marxist view, liberation theology in particular, and it's a very bad interpretation of the Bible. When, for example, the Old Testament is read through Marxist spectacles, elements are foregrounded that would not be emphasized when reading through capitalist glasses and vice versa. Capitalist glasses? You don't read with capitalist... What's he... What? You don't read with capitalist glasses. The Bible teaches capitalism. The Bible constructs capitalism. But let's keep going here. And then he says, Is it an accident that liberation theology focuses on the exodus as a paradigmatic event of salvation? So there you go. He rightly asserts that Marxist uh, viewpoints 
Marxist tendencies would cause you to develop a liberation theology. So is it an, is it an accident that liberation theology ends up with this focus? Exodus as a paradigmatic event of salvation? Probably not. Uh, then he says, does the legacy of Adam Smith have anything to say about wealthy Western Protestantism's strange silence regarding the Old Testament condemnation of usury during the last two centuries? It probably does. Wait a second. Adam Smith, okay, he's picking on a pivotal Western leading figure who articulated uh, in a very clear way in modern civilization the doctrines or the principles of capitalism. Adam Smith is famous for writing The Wealth of Nations, which helped inform, in part, our founders in the development of our system of our political system and our economic system. So he says, does Adam Smith's legacy, which he's suggesting in a, in a negative way, it's a negative legacy, um, have anything to say about Protestantism's silence regarding the Old Testament condemning the use of interest. Well, that doesn't make any sense because interest isn't bad and sinful. Uh, extortion, oppression, and interest, abuse of poor people, and greed is not good, but interest in and of itself isn't bad. And also, that was in the theocracy of Israel that they were not, they were told not to charge interest. That wasn't for uh, the economy at large. That wasn't a principle for all of humanity. You can never charge interest. So he continues, the point, however, is that both sides need to hear each other and both as much as possible should strive for a reading of the text that is appropriate to its genre and structure. So right here, just on page 18, incredibly so, we see that a very conservative, allegedly very conservative a uh, biblical interpreter, theologian, scholar, probably a PhD type, in our side of, of Christianity, uh, probably in, in, in the vein of the Reformed movement, in our denominational heritage, this guy right here is saying that there is, as I already mentioned, a moral equivalency between Marxism and capitalism. They're on the same plane, and we need to strive for a reading of the text uh, that doesn't take either perspective or bias or prejudice or lens uh, in, into its interpretation. We need to have a reading of the Bible that doesn't consider either perspective, but just reads appropriate to the Bible's genre and structure. We need to hear both sides, hear each other as much as possible, and then find the via media, the, the, the road down the middle, as they say. And this is, well, this is, uh, this is a little outlandish. I, I was actually with my brother when I was reading this, and um, I, read, I read him this excerpt, and he goes, Again, another book? What is with these guys' fetish with bringing up economic models in theology books? First of all, why do they always take a hard right turn into politics and economics in theology books? And why, why is that their obsession? And then always when they do that, their obsession is to draw some sort of equivalency between Marxism and capitalism, excoriate both, and say we need to meet somewhere in the middle. This is what's plaguing our institutions and our thinkers. They don't understand. Not only is there not a moral equivalency, but capitalism is, as I said, 
a construction of the Bible, God's created moral order. How did I say it? I was I was talking about it last week, and a phrase came to mind that I was trying to remember, and I think it was this way, that the uh, the capitalism, market, ownership, property ownership, uh, is not standing over the gospel or over and against the gospel, but it is an entailment of the gospel. You know, in the Old Testament, and I also am stealing this point from my brother, in the Old Testament, uh, I believe it's now my minor prophets are evading me. Uh, it's not Malachi. Hold, hold on a moment. And we're back. I think it's Micah, but don't quote me on that. But one of the minor prophets excoriates the different facets of, the, uh, of Jewish-Israelite society because of their sin. He goes after the prophets uh, and the priests, the spiritual side, the kings, the political side, and then also the merchants, the uh, economic side. But he goes after them because they have, they have unfair weights and measures. They're cheating people because of, of uh, deceptive weights and measures in, in payment and in rendering cost and in rendering compensation. Okay, they're stealing. So what does that presuppose? And I have to give credit my brother with this. That presupposes that there ought to be what? Correct weights and measurements for the correct rendering of compensation, payment, and cost, particularly wages to the worker. In other words, it presupposes ownership that someone is owed something because it's their right to that property and you have to measure it out adequately and correctly. Okay, this is what I wanted to say last week. Again, that just made my point that capitalism is an entailment of a biblical worldview and model. So we, we keep hearing, especially from this guy Dempster, and when I read to you from Lintz last week and all these scholars, this suggestion that the Bible critiques all models, Marxism, capitalism. But here's what I want to say to you. The gospel doesn't critique first principles of Western civilization. It does not critique these principles, principles like democ democracy and the market, capitalism, individualism, but rather the gospel and scripture informs and grounds and sustains and creates first principles for Western culture like capitalism. Marxism is alien. Marxism is lawless. Marxism is built in a violation of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. It's a violation of those. It encourages theft and coveting. And also Marxism is built on this faulty notion that you can dissolve property ownership. I've said this so many times on this show. You cannot dissolve or erase property ownership. That's like saying you can get rid of gravity. God has built property ownership, i.e. capitalism, the private property rights, into creation. The question is not whether you have property rights, capitalism, or not. The question is, who has the property rights? The question is, who owns things? And what capitalism does and the free market does is disperses ownership so that more and more can participate in the blessedness of private property ownership. You disperse property ownership among the many, among the population. Everybody can own. Whereas Marxism, socialism, and other models of theft just shrink the amount of people that can own to the top elite. There's still ownership. It's just the top elite own everything. So, you, so in Marxism and socialism and other devilish models, you consolidate ownership to the top, to the very few, and all the plebs on the bottom, all the poor people, the oppressed people own nothing. But you still have ownership. You can't get rid of ownership. Does this make sense? And I'll continue saying this. 
Yes, the gospel critiques sin in the culture, in Western culture, like in any other culture. No one has ever denied that. But philosophical principles in the West, like capitalism in the market, are not subject to gospel criticism as systems because they are an extension. They are an outworking of the gospel. And philosophical principles like Marxism, feminism, liberation theology are subject to gospel criticism because these things are antithesis to the gospel. Western civilization has not enculturated the gospel. Western civilization, in large part in its systems, has been enculturated itself, influenced by the gospel. I hope this makes sense. And I want to read one other thing about capitalism that I said from my Sunday school class. Okay, pay close attention here because I'm, I'm going to read at you. Now, the Bible has a lot to say repudiating greed, which is right and great, and we do well to be warned against greed. Uh, but these greed passages are often weaponized against capitalism, and I think that's what some of these so-called scholars are doing. They don't have the conservative mind, and they're misappropriating the text. Uh, these are weaponized against capitalism, capitalism so named in modern debates, like Stephen Dempster did, but it's better called the sanctity of property. So liberal Christians object to capitalism and they say, see, the Bible repudiates greed. Therefore, they conclude, abolish property. Capitalism is bad. It's greedy. As a system, it's built on greed. But no, no, it's not. That's like saying, here's an illustration for you. That's like saying sex is lust and sex is a system built on lust. Property rights, ownership, capitalism, the market, consumerism, let's even call it consumerism, which uh, progressive-minded people hate that word, but all of that property ownership is no more greedy than sex in marriage is lustful. In other, world, in other words, it's not. Capitalism is not greedy, and sex is not lustful, and greed no more disqualifies capitalism as the right course for an economic model than lust and promiscuity disqualifies sex as the right course for a model of marriage. Listen, the Bible unequivocally teaches ownership, the market, so be capitalist, but don't be greedy. That's sin. But the moral law, property ownership, is not sin. Same thing with sex. Be sexual. But don't be a fornicator, because that's sin. But the moral order of sex in marriage is not sin. Does that make sense? Capitalism isn't sin and isn't inherently sinful, nor is sex sin or inherently sinful. Saying capitalism and property ownership is sinful is like saying all sex is sinful. It's absurd. Listen, greed is sinful. Lust is sinful. But the absolute moral order of God is anything but sinful. His systems, property ownership and sex are wise and right. His systems are wise and right. We just abuse them. That's what Paul warns against and the Bible warns against the sinful abuse of the systems, but not the thing itself. I hope that makes sense. Let justice roll down like waters, America, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I didn't plan for this today, but I opened up another book and found more of the same progressive infected drivel coming out of our scholars who have, even on the conservative side, an obsession with turning theology books into critiques on capitalism. It's so weird. What's going on? They don't have a conservative mind. Come back tomorrow.